0: These are Grindstaff Publishing Audio Files. Room to Rome, Chapter 15, France The southern terminus of France is beautiful. As our bus wound through the countryside, my earbuds were blasting country western music and my long hair bounced upon my shoulders. The bus was not crowded and not too long into our journey north, a young guy in the seat in front of me turned and asked what I was listening to. Taking my earbuds out, I told him, which sparked a big debate in music, how country-western music was nothing but shit, and how metal was the best. We didn't stop talking the remainder of the way to Toulouse. The young guy was about 22 years old and Canadian, with a peach-fuzz mustache and earnest eyes which seemed to be intelligent and kind. Our bus arrived in the relatively small city of Toulouse around 9 in the evening, and it turned out that Canadian and I were booked at the same hostel. After some small talk with the proprietor of the hostel, we were shown our room, a large square with four sets of bunk beds lining each wall. Eager to stretch our legs, we set out on a walk through town. In our topic weaving discussion on the bus ride, it came up we each had a burgeoning fascination with photography. We spent our first night wandering down to the river, showing each other the little we knew about ISO and F-Stop and how to take a halfway decent picture at night. After a while of walking, we came to a large open square and signed a candlelight vigil being held for those lost in the parish attacks. It was around midnight, but the vigil supported a couple dozen people, some in tears, others drawing French phrases on the ground. Everyone was somber. As I gazed at the candles and the handmade signs plastered to the building, I couldn't help but feel a grief which I had never experienced. All the problems of the world seemed so far away to my isolationist country. Even the attack on the World Trade Center was over 3,000 miles away from home in rural Oregon. But there, in France, the attacks were all too close which made them real. My Canadian comrade had tears in his eyes, most of the way back to the hostel. There wasn't much to discuss. The morning was a bit dreary as I made my way to a quaint corner bakery and had a croissant. My Canadian friend and I decided we enjoyed each other's company enough to explore more of the city together so we set off toward the river. We must have looked like proper tourists with our cameras around our necks stopping every few minutes to capture a purple window shutter or the light fixtures adorning the side of a building. After hours of walking the cobblestone roads, we wanted to find a high spot to see the city from. Not wanting to spend any money, we talked to the right people who told us to go to the top of a department store in the shopping district downtown. Dubious of the advice, we walked in the front doors of the large store, walked past the cosmetics with their heavily perfumed air, and took the elevator to the top. Stepping out onto the terrace of the building proved our intuitions wrong. The city sprawled out before us with its red roofs and typical French chimneys. We took our photos and marveled at our luck. After an hour of walking back and forth, smiling with astonishment, we descended the building and left through the perfumed air ready for more adventure. Where better for that than a bar? The Canadian and I had our first beer at a pizza restaurant around 6. We met some interesting people and the wood-fired pizza was amazing. The next bar was dull, but the beer was cold. The third bar was close to the river and looked like a kind of sports bar from the outside. We decided to give it a shot and entered to find the walls were littered with Polaroids of women lifting up their tops to expose their bare breasts. Smiling at the incredible number of photos, we went to the bar, received our beers in plastic cups, and migrated to the back area which housed a foosball table. We started playing the game haphazardly as a way to pass the time between sips of beers. Within minutes of playing, two young French guys came over and asked if we wanted to make a bet. Not thinking anything of it, we obliged agreeing to play against the two, losers by beer to the others. Within seconds, we knew we had made a mistake. I have never before seen anyone as good at a table game as those two Frenchmen were. It was ridiculous the level of play they possessed in manipulating those little men and the speed that soccer ball had as it found our goal ten times before we could even score one. Realizing we had been hustled, we bought the Frenchmen beers and vowed to not play any more foosball. Feeling bad for the trick they had played, the Frenchman offered to buy us a shot. We accepted. The bartender and the Frenchman were all good friends and were shocked we had never been to France, let alone Toulouse, let alone their favorite bar in all the world. The five of us began telling stories and drinking heavily. Each shot was apparently the epitome of French cuisine, if one was to believe the bartender, and they kept passing them our way. After maybe six shots in, a few more younger French guys walked in and they also knew the bartender and the two guys who had hustled us. Instantly we became friends and more shots were had. The other guys were getting tired of there being no women in the bar so they asked if we wanted to go to a real French bar. Quite drunk, my Canadian friend and I yelled in acceptance but first we had to take the last shot. With a wink to the bartender, all of the Frenchmen smiled and began telling us some bullshit origin story behind the alcohol they called the Antichrist. From deep below the bar, a tall bottle with a cracked cork was brought out containing red liquid with chunks floating. The mood in the bar shifted from one of joviality to seriousness as a bartender poured all of us, including himself, a shot from the demonic elixir. Like some sort of ancestral toast, we lifted our glasses in the air and threw back the red liquid. It burned its way down our throats and landed with a thud in our stomachs. We all cheered and wiped our lips, some quivering from the disgusting taste. Without hesitation, we exited the bar with the topless girls on the walls and migrated not too far away to a packed, yellow-painted bar. The bar was out of control. It was like a mix between a college party and a puck rock concert. Every inch of the building was covered with sweaty young people dancing and grinding to loud French music, plastic cups sloshing out the myriad liquids which lie within. Our small group bellied up to the bar and a shot was quickly thrown back, then a plastic cup of beer took its place. By now my head was spinning with the sheer volume of alcohol I had consumed, not to mention the variety of foreign swill sloshing in my gut. A few more people joined our group, including one man who looked much older than the rest of us, with his closely cropped hair and denim jacket. Hearing we were from North America, this new guy left and returned with shot glasses for each of our group, which we quickly lit ablaze. The shot went down smoother than I thought, but the room started to spin. I looked at my Canadian comrade, and his eyes told me he was in the same headspace. The rest of our group was sad we were leaving, and amidst the loud music and dancing, people all around, we hugged one another, exchanged contact information, and said our goodbyes. The air was cool as we stumbled out the door from the yellow bar not entirely sure how to get back to our hostel. Loudly we exclaimed how grateful we were to have all of our shots bought, every one, and what an amazing country France was. Our room was completely quiet as we walked in but soon realized a head was poking out of one of the bunks which wasn't there when we left. Trying to be quiet, an objective I'm only too sure we failed, we found our bunks and laid our drunken heads. I couldn't come close to estimating how many drinks I had had that night. It was truly too many to count. The bus pulled up behind the main train station in Lyon around dusk and people were everywhere. This is to be expected from a train depot in one of the larger cities in France, but after hours of riding on a bus, the last thing I wanted to do was navigate through commuters trying to get home or to a party or to wherever they were trying to go that Friday night. Like so many times before, I gathered my small backpack and began to weave through the bustle of the station to make to the other side. I had found the first hour or so in a new city to be such a stressful time. Nothing is familiar. The faces all seem to be looking at you and all my mind turned to a tunnel vision mess of got to get to the hostel. After weaving through the downtown shopping center and being harassed by two homeless Frenchmen trying to sell me stolen watches, I walked across a bridge and watched a beautiful purple sunset over some large buildings. It was now officially dark and the masses of people just kept sliding past me. Eventually, I made my way through a restaurant-lined alley with tables on the streets and young, hip people in chairs drinking wine and food I could not afford. Turning a corner, I passed a McDonald's advertising Big Macs for 12 euros and shook my head with anxiety and hunger. At the end of the block, my GPS said I had found my hostel, but there was no street name nor building number to be found, just an abnormally large wooden door and a keypad to the right of it. Remembering the confirmation email, I pulled up the directions on how to get in. Pushing the corresponding numbers, an apathetic voice came over the speaker and asked something in French. Guessing, I responded with, I have a reception to stay for the night? To which the voice responded with a uh, oui. and a loud buzz, clicked the door and I walked in. Passing through the long dark walkway, I noticed mailboxes and a sign above notifying me that my hostel was on the fourth floor. The automatic lights weren't doing their job and I ascended the stone stairs in partial darkness with only the faint voices of people above to assure me I was heading in the right direction. Once I reached the 4th floor, two guys my age were sitting on a window ledge smoking weed and nodded their head up as I passed them and pushed the door with hostel gleaming white above. The floor plan was strange for a hostel. It seemed to have been a large apartment at one time with three rooms to the left and five to the right of the entrance. Young people were walking around looking at me with hints of curiosity, but no one said anything even though I could have been anyone. Hesitantly, I walked to the first room on the right and everyone looked up at once while the music continued to play loudly from a surround sound set up with speakers on all four corners. The room looked like a college dorm with a huge map of the world hanging next to posters of Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison. A black couch was below the map with three people in their mid-twenties drinking wine and smiling and speaking French. Next to the window overlooking downtown Lyon was an older guy, maybe 35 years old, who I could tell was American before he ever spoke a word. He was one of those guys who exuded the typical American vibe. Looking to the left was a black bookcase which covered the entire wall and was filled with used paperbacks and various forms of abuse, some in French, some in English, all in disarray. In the corner where the bookcase wall met the window wall was a handsome blonde guy, again in his mid-twenties, behind a desk. The guy leaned back in his leather chair and instantly asked, Where in America are you from? Taken aback by his spot-on question, I responded, I'm from Oregon. I have a reservation to stay here for two nights. A girl sitting in a black leather armchair directly in front of the desk stood up slowly and with an accent said, Welcome, as she smiled and passed with a glass of red wine in her hand. Welcome, May. You're just in time for happy hour. Are you filling some wine? One of the guys on the couch below the world map asked, motioning toward a half-empty bottle of Bordeaux on the blonde guy's desk. Looking back, I'm fairly sure the guy was English by his accent, but he looked Indian, especially with his shoulder-length black hair and Lenny Kravitz's way of holding himself. Sure, was all I could respond with, and sat in the chair in front of the desk and poured myself a glass full of wine. It was then the blonde guy introduced himself and took my passport into the typical checking-in process. The room was so full of life, all I could do was look around and try to keep up. The American next to the window kept talking about California while the three on the couch were telling him how France was the place to be. People would walk into the room with more wine bottles and begin talking like they had been staying in the hostel for weeks. With the music blaring and the people talking, it was all I could do to catch the words the reception worker was saying. After a few minutes of feeling like a complete outsider, the guy took me to my room for the night, a 10-bed dorm with white bunks and mattresses with stains. I chose a bunk closest to the door and began putting linens over the stains on the bottom mattress. A younger girl was reading on the bottom bunk on the opposite side of the room and we began talking about our travels. After a while, another girl walked into the room. This girl was bubbly and loud and was not shy to run over and shake my hand and tell me how happy she was to meet another American and ask me where I was from and tell me she was from California. We all spoke quickly like all people in hostels do, telling each other where we've been and where we were headed. A hostel is an amazing environment unlike any other for conversation. Once you open the door, there are people from all over the world waiting inside, ready to talk about all manner of things. Everyone is giddy and excited about what they are doing and where they have been and want to know where you've been because maybe you know something they don't. Majority of the people in a hostel are between 18 and 35, so we all have similar interests and ways of looking at the world, but our backgrounds are all different, and the conversations fly, and the words are rapid, and once one more person opens that door, the stories start over, but no one is upset to tell the same stories because we were all travelers and doing something unique. Once the stories began to fade, I asked the girls if there was a grocery store nearby, and they said yes, and I went out into the French night. Passing a bakery with a red awning clothes of the night and a burger place with people outside, I found the market and bought a quick dinner of sandwich and chips and of course cheap French wine. Back at the hostel I found the kitchen and it was packed with three guys from Greece hitting on a girl from New York to Little Gain. Finding a bottle opener, I stood against the counter listening to the foreign pickup lines while opening the bottle. People are the same all over. After my meager dinner, I brought the bottle of wine back to my room and began writing in my journal a little. There was constant commotion around the hostel halls. Various languages would be screamed at all times of night, with music coming from all the rooms with different genres and languages clashing into a cacophony of cultural bliss. The beds in my room began to fill up with a 30-year-old from Sweden across from me plucking on a ukulele and an American to my right with a book on neuroscience. The Swedish guy found out I had been to Sweden and began asking me all sorts of questions. Did I like it? Where was my favorite place? Had I gone to any metal concerts? The entire time we talked, he was fiddling with his ukulele, and I realized he was playing it with the most skill I'd ever heard anyone play the quirky little instrument. Eventually, I asked him where he got it, and he responded he just bought it maybe a week ago. I teach classical guitar back in Sweden, he said, but I didn't want to bring a full-size guitar with me on the trip, so I found this little guy last week in Germany. Really I've just been plucking at it, trying to make it sound halfway decent. The suite was about six foot five, with blonde hair and blonde beard. The way he spoke was gentle, and his English was amazing, as is the case of the majority of Scandinavia. The whole room responded with compliments about the playing. Compliments the Swede mostly accepted. After the conversation began to sway away from me, I turned to the guy to my right with a neuroscience book in his hands and soon got lost in conversation with him. It turned out he had just completed his undergraduate and it was at a crossroads between graduate school and travel, much like I found myself at the time. The focus he had been leaning towards was more clinical, while my focus had been more consciousness a field which I had done the bulk of my neuroscience research while completing my undergraduate. Once we each established our backgrounds, the philosophy began to fly. First delving into the nuances of consciousness, we quickly followed up on the temporality of EEG and the lack of such an fMRI. Within minutes, our brains were clicking on all cylinders and the subject of statistics flooded the space between us. Commenting on multivariate ANOVA and chi-squares and how we each had wanted to do meta-analysis research of our own topics, mine in evolutionary psychology and his in drug effects, the conversation reached a crescendo when we each became silent. I hadn't had that kind of talk for some time and it felt good to squeeze my brain like that in a hostel in France, a place I had no intention of ever bringing up that kind of science. Everyone in the room looked towards us with strange looks and the goody girl in the corner commented, that was really interesting. The room became mostly quiet after the explosion everyone had just had amongst their clicks. I had continued to drink my wine with headphones blasting music into my ears and journal getting frantically scribbled upon. Around midnight, our Swedish friend began to play his ukulele, only this time louder, which seemed to carry the sound around the hostel. And brought the long haired Indian guy I had met in the reception room in with a backpack guitar. Oi, oh, hey, mate, you mind if we jam together? The Swede smiled with confirmation, and the two of them began to harmonize with the two instruments. It didn't take long for a younger guy with bright red hair and a full sized guitar to walk in and join the sound making while one of the girls sat in the mix and began singing. Within no time, the four of them began covering songs and got louder. Loud enough where people I hadn't seen in the hostel before came to our doorframe to lean and listen to the jam session. So there we were. A room full of strangers playing beautiful music and talking about neuroscience and travels around the world all while drinking wine and looking out at the cool night spreading over Lyon in a hostel full of young people on a Friday night. All of us the same in the way we wanted to live that night. Together and conversing about things we didn't know and things we did and sharing stories of what we have done and will do. The background were the high-pitched laughs of the Greeks yelling stories and the smell of marijuana wafting here and there. The hostel with only two bathrooms for so many people and a kitchen with so many empty wine bottles but no one making food. All of us stayed up late listening to music and telling stories and feeling the most present, for moments like that are truly such. Rejoicing in our youth and living in that moment despite the atrocity which had happened in Paris less than a week before. When I think of that hostel, I think of a bohemian life, and that life is one I wish to live for some time to come because that life is a good life, at least for the ones who accept it as such. To live a unique life, a life untethered by social norms and one in the pursuit of understanding and wanting to know more of things we know less. That is a bohemian lifestyle of the day, and that lifestyle is the one I experienced in that hostel. And at least for those two nights, there is no place I'd rather have been. It was raining on my way to Paris. The bus pounded on down the freeway as I was lost in conversation with an alternative girl from Paris originally and her Canadian boyfriend. They were on their way to see her family and were both excited to spend some time in the City of Lights, the same city on so many postcards, the same city which people actually lived and worked and went about their normal days. The excitement flooded my body as the upper portions of the Eiffel Tower stuck out from behind the plain buildings lining the roadway. Our bus parked far from the city center as was common with my cheap travel options, and I pulled out the rickety umbrella I had picked up in Biorno. With a vague understanding of where I was going, I began walking down a bustling street until I was face-to-face with the Arc de Triomphe. To my confusion, the iconic Arc was situated in the middle of a busy roundabout. I followed signs, hurried through an underground tunnel, and soon emerged on the other side looking up at the inscriptions lining the underbelly of the Arc, surrounded by heavily armed police with bulletproof vests and weary looks upon their faces. It was then the full weight of the terrorist attacks just days previous took hold and I began to selfishly worry that the carefree Paris of old would be gone. Leaving the Arc de Triomphe, I walked down the Champs Elysees, humming its familiar tune in my head, taking in the sights of upscale Paris and imagining the history which the street had seen. As usual, I ducked down side streets to get away from the swarm of tourists and tried to feel the residential vibes. By then, the rain had slowed, and the gray clouds amidst the buildings lent the city a gothic but inviting atmosphere. Like the other buildings, the Eiffel Tower snuck into my view through the residential buildings. A flutter went through me as I began my chase. Over buildings with locks and small inscriptions, past the locals of the bistros, and despite the rain, I hurried until the tower stood stark in front of me. I looked up, mesmerized by one of the most iconic buildings in the world. Standing there at the Champs-de-Mars, looking up at the iron beasts I felt a weight on me, Strangely, the entire trip through Europe, despite all the amazing sights I had seen, somehow culminated in standing in front of the Eiffel Tower in the sprinkling rain. The entire trip suddenly made sense. It was like a kind of magnum opus presenting its beauty to the beholder. I was over halfway through my trek around Europe, but it seemed I had found the hot burning center of the trip. Everything else radiated from it. This was the focal point. The clouds began to darken and the rain came back. I remembered a movie which paid homage to the city of light, stating Paris is best in the rain. As I walked away from the tower amidst a cacophony of accents and couples leaning on one another, under myriad umbrellas, I understood what they meant. I left, crossed the sign, and stood at an awe at the Louvre all lit up in the dark, its glass pyramid a stark contrast to the gothic body of the museum behind. My hostel was situated on the same street as the Moulin Rouge, quite a distance from the Louvre, which gave me ample opportunity to experience the city in the rain. I arrived drenched but drunk with excitement, checked into the dingy old hotel turned hostel, and found my room. After a quick change of clothes, I hurried back out into the rain to explore the 18th arrondissement. The streets were teeming as the red lights from the windmill top Moulin Rouge cast its sinful glow to the pedestrians below. After some exploration, I ducked into a side market, bought cheap French wine, and found my way back to the common room of my hostel. The ball didn't stand a chance, as I planned out the next few days in the wonderful city. The morning came suddenly as I hurried through breakfast and found myself, shoulders hunched walking through the rain on my way to the Louvre. It was early, so the lines were not like all the terrible stories I had been hearing for months. Once inside, my legs bounded with excitement past the throngs of tourists. With eyes devouring every painting and every statue, I come the museum for five hours before standing at the exit a bit disappointed. How could I be let down by one, if not the best museum in the world? I had seen the Mona Lisa surrounded by immense works on all sides of her small frame. I had seen Venus de Milo, Napoleon's apartments, the winged victory of Somothrys, and the Virgin on the rocks and the pilfered antiquities of Egypt, but felt something was missing. The rain had increased in the five hours I had spent in the Grand Museum and the streets seemed to have swollen immensely. With check umbrella in hand, I trudged along with only my burning excitement to keep me warm. Notre Dame stood a beautifully gothic and grand, gargoyles sputtering water from all sides. Crossing the sign, I found Refuge in Shakespeare and Company, a functional bookstore where prominent writers of the past, Hemingway with Joyce and Stein, spent their time thumbing through books they couldn't afford. Upon entering the book War in Paradise, I was greeted by a Feed the Starving Writers sign situated in the floorboards underneath a plexiglass shield. Walking along book-heavy shelves with small nooks carved out here and there with the smell of must and thick pages wafting, I was happy. The rain outside completed the atmosphere of the small establishment, which had seen so many faces pass through its green doors. Before leaving, I purchased Hemingway's Unmovable Feast, a brilliant book about his younger years spent in Paris, and made my way down to the Latin Quarter of the city with the rain coming down in buckets. Past the Sorbonne, through the Jardin de Luxembourg, up and down countless alleys and side streets, I made it back to the Champ de mars with the Eiffel Tower. Night was beginning to fall as I made a final push and walked into the entrance of the catacombs of Paris. The ticket booth looks like an old train station booth with its heavily grouted tile floors and flickering light feel. I descended what seemed like a mile, then walked through a long corridor of smooth earthen walls until I began seeing the remains of humans who died long ago. Dwarfing the ossuary in Bjorno, the catacombs of Paris hold what is left of approximately six million people, many dying from one of the plagues that ransacked the city generations ago. The Ossuary in Borno was not so much creepy as it was thought-provoking. The building was designed with artistic intent, and the droning music encouraged an examination of mortality in the face of death. The catacombs of Paris are different in every way. There is no music, there is no sound. The remains are piled in heaps on either side of the walkway, many green from the algal growth of decades of moisture and dripping. It is cold and damp, with minimal light and blocked-off corridors to discourage tourists from getting lost. As Biorno offered a meditation, Paris slapped you in the face and showed us all what death truly looked like. A heap of anonymous bones spread out, each hoping to decompose as quickly as possible back into the elements from which they came. Some people were noticeably uneasy as they shuffled through pathways. I overheard many talks of death, how each person wanted to die if given the chance, and what would happen to their bodies in such an event. As I walked through looking at skulls placed looking out into the walkway, I found myself trying to picture how it would look with skin on it. Who would it belong to? It was cathartic in a way, knowing that so many people had been met with the inevitability of death, something all men must do. After an hour in the catacombs, I scaled the black iron spiral staircase of the world of the living. Before leaving, an apathetic worker in a black leather jacket asked to look in my backpack for any bones or other souvenirs I may have tried taking with me. I was then released out into the dark streets of Paris, still wet from the day of rain. The air smelled cleaner and the lights brighter. Nothing makes life seem worth living, like being face to face with a skull red from plague and green from dampness resting forever underneath the streets of Paris. Morning came with more rain as I walked along the sign, past the orange trees and into the Musée de l'Orangerie. A fraction of the size of the Louvre, the Orangerie fit my artistic taste perfectly. The first stop was the Oval Rooms housing Monet's water lilies. Lining the stark white walls stretched the brilliantly simplistic, impressionistic canvases. I stood getting lost in them for minutes, sometimes getting so close I could see the individual brush strokes, while others stood across the room taking them in as a whole. Descending deeper into the museum, I saw Picasso, Rousseau, Matisse, Souton, and my favorite painter, Amidio Modigliani. The hairs on my arms stood erect while I realized I was looking at an actual Modigliani painting. I had to read the description plates twice just to convince myself I was standing in front of the madman's amazing work. Eyes darkened, proportions stretched, and with colors painted to give the viewer a strange, intimate feeling, Medigliani has fascinated me since I first heard his story. These painters of the late 19th century, early 20th century are my favorites. The way they lived, the way they placed their art before so much else, the time they lived, the community of artists they were constantly surrounded by, and the age of Paris which can only be described as golden. The museum encompassed that feeling. It was stepping back into a time when Paris and the art scene it inspired were at its peak. Crossing the sign, I ventured over into the Musée d'Orsay, the middle ground between the Impressionists of the Longier and the old masters of the Louvre. The museum is built from an old train station, which gives it such an amazing atmosphere. It uses every inch of its two-story frame, divided into different periods and styles to give the viewer an incredible experience. Walking in the halls I saw my first Van Gogh in real life, past sculptures of such varying depictions, looked at the gigantic clock out onto the city with the Eiffel Tower stark against the grey clouds, and saw so many children in awe of the beauty surrounding us all. One of the exhibits which partially caught my attention was off in a corner, shrouded in red velvet curtains. It was focused on prostitutes and the way artists ignored the social prudishness of the day to create intimate, sensual portrayals of women working in the oldest profession. Walking through the exhibit, it was refreshing to see couples of all ages discuss the beauty of these sometimes explicit portraits of prostitutes engaging in various forms of sexuality. The art was exceptional and the message even better. The Belle Époque was an extraordinary time to be alive in Paris. My personal favorite of that time, Toulouse-Lautrec, embodied someone who lived to its fullest and suffered the consequences. It seemed the rain would not let up no matter how many hours I spent in museums. Trudging back to the Latin Quarter for a cheap bite to eat, I began to feel my feet ache with pain. Trucking it off, I found a nice Greek restaurant, watched as the rain only worsen, and then trekked back to my hostel. It was a bit early, but my feet were extremely itchy and sharp pain shot up randomly. Once back to my room with roommates gone, I took out the hiking boot-style footwear I stupidly deemed fit for a walk across Europe. Since I was constantly walking, my boots never got the chance to fully dry out. Consequently, my feet were going into a wet environment each morning and remained there for all but around 8 hours a day. When I took my socks off, my feet were sickly white and shrunken. The radiating pain was almost unbearable as I hobbled through the shower only to be in even more agony once I stepped into the warm water. Emerging from the bathroom, feeling a bit relieved, I walked into the room to a putrid smell of feet. In what can be considered one of my lowest points of the trip, I ignored the awful smell of my own rotting boots and climbed into my top bunk like the vagrant I had become. I could only imagine what my roommates, which were not the homeless wanderer type I was morphing into, but young travelers on a simple vacation thought upon entering our room later that evening. I opened my eyes the next morning to find sunshine peeking through the heavy curtain and the feet-stinking atmosphere I had created. With a jolt, partially out of joy and a bit from embarrassment, I hurried downstairs and out the door and was greeted by my first sunny day in Paris. The warm rays of the sun hit my face and jolted me with energy as I found a corner bakery, wafting extravagant smells, and treated myself to a coffee and croissant before navigating the public transportation of Paris. Making quick work of the underground system, which I had been assured would be a nightmare, I was bounding quickly to one of my top destinations the city had to offer a cemetery. I made my way inside the Pere Lachaise Cemetery, one of the most infamous pieces of ground in the world. Having downloaded a map of the layout the night before, I made my way to Oscar Wilde's place of burial first. Next was Edith Piaf, then Proust, Chopin, and Omidio Medigliani with his surprisingly humble grave. I walked in silence past tombs with broken doors. Some had elegant statues placed outside them. Many gravestones were the average ones every town has, while others were lavish and intricate. After getting turned around a few times more than I would have liked considering I had a map, I finally found the grave I was looking for. With a black gate placed about six feet from the actual headstone adorned with brightly colored ribbons and braids was laid the remains of Jim Douglas Morrison, front man of my favorite band, The Doors. In the brisk November air, I placed my headphones in my ears and played my favorite live version of the end, the 17 minute one with a moth joke halfway through. I stood there the entire 17 minutes, alone, thinking not only of Jim, not in some super fan kind of way, but in an homage to the ideals he stood for, the life he led and the life we all lead. As the song progressed, I closed my eyes behind my blue ray and tried to remain as present as I could be. Those moments seemed to last the eternity. Once the song was over, a couple came up to the fence and placed a colorful ribbon around the plain black bars, a glimpse of the impact one man can have on a generation, on the world. I left the cemetery and went up to the Montmartre district of the city. Up on the Sacre-Cœur, which was swarmed with people, overlooking the beautiful center of Paris in the sunshine, I walked along the sign back to Notre Dame, past the Eiffel Tower and in random tangents. I flipped through used books at small wooden bookshops Bucanistas, situated along the Seine. I walked through the Latin Quarter, past two houses Ernest Hemingway lived in while he was young and found Gertrude Stein's house. I was sadly the city of lights. I was sadly the people, the smells, the food, the sights, all of it. As night fell, I found myself wandering, taking in the lights and how the city felt at night. I walked past the Louvre at night, not much different than my first night in the city with the rain beating down. The city was so alive, no matter what time, there is always some place to go, something to do. Grabbing a bottle of cheap red French wine, I sat in the common room of my hostel and booked my ferry ticket from the tip of Denmark to the eastern side of Iceland, which would leave in less than three weeks. As a bitter red wine found its way down my throat, I stared at the confirmation ticket on my tablet. There was less than three weeks left on my trip and I still had so much to see. Like many nights before, the bottle of cheap wine was emptied and the stiff bunk bed was a welcome relief from the night. The next morning I would leave Paris, leave France, and leave the focal point of my trip, not in temporality, but in mind. End of chapter.